There it was 13 years ago in the floor of my studio apartment in Portland, Oregon. There was virtually no furniture. I was sleeping on the floor because I didn't have a mattress yet. I had no job, no friends, no community, no family for 2,000 miles. I was lonely, isolated, desperate, scared, broken. I was at the low point of my life. I was in an intense season of desperation. You see, six weeks prior, I had graduated from Liberty University in Virginia and loaded everything I owned up in my 05 Chevy Colorado and drove from Lynchburg, Virginia to Portland, Oregon, the corner of Southeast 19th and Hawthorne in my little studio apartment. My plan was to attend Western Seminary and uh, get my Master of Divinity and then I would uh, maybe plant a church in the Portland area, an area that needed a lot of churches. Well, I was six weeks into this grand plan and I was desperate. I was in the lowest point of my life up until then and since then. And God brought me to a place where the only thing I could do was fall to my knees and cry out to God, help. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that season of life where you ask the question, what am I going to do? And, to the, and for the answer, you have nothing. Have you been to that place where you almost don't even pray? You just kind of like moan in God's direction. Just say, help me. Well, this morning we are looking at Luke chapter 8 where two people who find themselves in a great season of desperation. And what we find through the teaching this morning is that Jesus' power and tenderness are experienced most in our desperation. And that is really good news. It was really good news for me because I, don't, I can't I have time to go into all the details, but God showed up in that little studio apartment in Portland, Oregon, redirected my course, and I am so thankful that he showed up in, both in power and in tenderness for me. Well, I'd like to pray, and then we will look at Luke chapter 8, verse 40 through 56. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much that when we are desperate, your power shines forth. Lord, that when we have, we've messed up, you reach out to us in tenderness. Lord, thank you you've done that in my life. And I thank you for this story that we get to look at today. Two very different people, two very desperate people. And see how you totally changed their life and you show up with great power and tenderness. So Lord, Holy Spirit, would you work in our midst and, and poke and prod at our hearts where we need to be moved so that we can leave today with a renewed dependence on you and renewed trust that no matter where we're at, you are powerful and you are tender. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage that we're looking at today, it's the climax of a, of a three-scene story. See, up until this uh, part in Jesus' ministry, people don't fully recognize who he is. They don't 
have formulated in their mind that Jesus is both God and man, God in flesh. We actually see the following chapter, the first time one of the apostles, it's Peter, say, you're, you're Christ, you're the son of the living God. So what Jesus is doing in this three-part story is showing to the world through miracles that Jesus is powerful, more powerful than anything. We see two weeks ago, Pastor Chad taught about Jesus calming the raging sea, the Sea of Galilee, showing us that Jesus is more powerful than the physical realm. The second scene is Jesus going across the Sea of Galilee and he uh, casts out a legion of demons out of a man, showing that Jesus is powerful over the spiritual realm. Now you might think, well, if Jesus is powerful over the physical and Jesus is powerful over the spiritual, what else is there? What we see from the story this morning, the climax of the story that shows us that Jesus is powerful over the human realm. You see, you and I, humans, we are the peak. We're the highest creation of all of God's creation. We're unique in various ways. We have what the Bible calls the image of God. The image of God means that we have a unique relationship to God and a unique capacity to reflect God's glory to the world. And we're the only created being that is both a fusion of body and spirit. Animals do not have a spirit that will live for eternity. Angels do not have a body. But you and I, we are a fusion of body and spirit together. That's why we see this story is the climax of Jesus showing that he is powerful. Because he's showing that he is powerful over all that we will ever face. Okay? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Now, uh, here it is. I have all the uh, text on the back of your worship guide. Usually we have it on the screen. But this story is kind of, it, it, it pans between these two people. So I thought it might be helpful to just have it all in one place. So if you don't have a Bible and you usually use your phone, I encourage you to use the back of, of your worship guide today. It could be a real help to you. All right. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, meaning he returned from the east side of the Sea of Galilee to the west side, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. I mean, they'd probably heard that this Jesus rabbi guy, he's a miracle worker, you gotta come check this thing out. And the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had, only, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Okay, so here we are introduced to the first of two characters of our story. It is a man named Jairus. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, and most likely he was in charge of organizing and designing the weekly worship in the synagogue. But this community that Jesus is, is in walking through, it's a small community. So he was also the de facto leader 
of the community. Very well respected, very well, you know, a stately man. He's proven, and he is someone that everyone knew and everyone respected. Well, Jairus and his unnamed wife, Scripture tells us, had only one child, a child who was 12 years old. And almost certainly what happened was that Jairus' wife had a traumatic first birth that rendered her unable to conceive following this birth. Because in this culture, no one just had one child on purpose. You see, in the ancient Near East, especially in the Jewish tradition, the more kids you have showed the more blessing that God gave you. It showed God's favor in your life. We see in Psalm 123, or excuse me, 127 verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the root wound is a reward. So I imagine Jairus and his wife, they had this one sweet daughter. And how much more would they treasure this girl? And I'd imagine they thought, well, I, you know, Lord, uh, we know children are heritage from you, and we know we wanted, we want more children. You've given us one. Thank you for this sweet girl. And maybe they thought, maybe the heritage is going to be a bunch of grandbabies. So you know, I mean, you know, there's some grand, some grandparents here. <laughs> I tell you what, it's interesting. You get, you see, we, my wife and I, we have three little ones, and we kind of walk along. Um, families who have kids. You know, the first kid, they're like, yeah, so excited. Second kid, once you get to three, you're like, yay, whoo, I need a nap, right? But I tell you, the one person who's always happy about the news, it's grandma and grandpa. They love grandbabies. So maybe Jairus and his wife are thinking, okay, Lord is just going to provide us with a bunch of grandbabies, extend the blessing that God has for us. And here we see the story tells us their sweet 12-year-old girl is on her deathbed. In the retelling of in Mark, it said literally she was dying. There is no parent who has a child who thinks it would be even possible that they would die at age 12. This is heartbreaking. This is heart-rending. All the hopes and the dreams that Jairus and his wife had hung on this little girl is about to go up in smoke because this little girl is dying. But the story tells us, and we don't know how it happened, but there's Jairus and his wife doing everything they can for their daughter, and maybe a servant comes. He said, hey, Jairus, look, there's this guy named Jesus He's done all this crazy, these crazy miracles. And he's a rabbi. Maybe you can do something for your daughter. So we see Jairus drops everything he does, runs to Jesus. And he says this stately, well-respected, buttoned-up leader falls at the feet of Jesus, begging him to come and heal his daughter. And Jesus goes, okay. He agrees. Look at me, verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment 
immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So here we find another desperate person. But these two people could not be more different. We see there's a woman who had some sort of uterine lesion that would not heal and had persisted for 12, week, 12 years. So at the time when Jairus and his wife were celebrating the birth of their first daughter, this woman was experiencing a traumatic injury that was causing her to be unclean according to Jewish customs. You see, and in, in, in we see in the Old Testament and in the culture of the day, anytime someone got some type of rash or some type of certain types of illnesses, they would need to be ceremonially unclean, be in a sort of quarantine until those things are healed. Then, then they would uh, go through a ceremonial washing and be, begin to enter into their normal day-to-day activities of their life. But we see for 12 years, this woman's injury had not stopped. That means for 12 years, she was unclean, religiously, culturally unclean. And what that means is according to commentators, she was in a socio-religious quarantine, right? We hear these stories of people in, with the coronavirus in a cruise ship off the coast of Japan. And they're unable to see their family get off. They've got lives to deal with, you know, and it, it's a hardship. Imagine that for 12 years. You see, if you were unclean and you touched another person, that made them unclean. So everyone would stay away from you until you were clean. Everyone would avoid you. You wouldn't be able to go into synagogue. You couldn't be a part of the feasts, a part of the celebrations. So the the only people that touched this woman for 12 years were the physicians. And in Mark, it says that she had suffered much under many physicians It had spent all she had, but was no better, but rather grew worse. Imagine not receiving a hug for 12 years. So this woman, though she had a physical illness, her identity became unclean. Physically, I'm unclean. Spiritually, I'm unclean. Her reputation is, oh, that's that woman who's unclean. Maybe she began to think, I am un- God doesn't love me. He views me as unclean. And she was broke, isolated, sick. She was desperate. So she heard about this guy named Jesus. And she risked it all. Scripture tells us that she muscled through the crowd. Everyone she touches becoming unclean. And scripture is oddly specific. She reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. What's that about? Like, was she going for his collar or like, <laughs> heal me? No, so commentators uh, point out that Jesus almost certainly would have worn a talit. This is a a prayer shawl that Orthodox Jews still wear today. This is Pastor Chad's, and it's half size. And I don't know why he has a half size prayer cloth, but uh, um, so it's a, it's a, so it would have it would have kind of uh, been long. And um, what they would use this for, 
uh, various things, but when they would pray, they'd put it over their head and cover their face. This was their prayer closet, if you ever heard that term. So we would walk, and as a, as a rabbi, there was specific instructions in the Old Testament of how to make these things. You see Numbers uh, chapter, is it 20, 25, or excuse me, 15. It says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So these prayer cloths, these rabbis would hold on to these knotted ends, these tassels, and it would be a physical reminder of the commandments of God, that they are to obey them and to walk in them. Again, we don't know the psychology of this woman, but we do know she went specifically for the, they call it tzitzit, for these tassels. You see, these symbolized, when you would pray, they would rub these in the connection to God. These symbolized a faithfulness and a fidelity to God's commandments and to his covenant. So I'd imagine as she muscles through that crowd, she reaches out and scripture tells us, touches the hem, the fringe, the tassel of his garment. And scripture tells us that she is healed like that. What is she doing in that moment? She's recognizing, she doesn't necessarily know that Jesus is God in flesh, but she recognizes this Jesus, there's something about him. His connection to God, the power he has from God, the kindness that he shows to the least and the lost. If I could do it, just touch the tassel of his prayer cloth, maybe I could get some of his righteousness. Maybe I can get some of his connection to God. Maybe God would send me some of Jesus' power and heal me. And you know what? She was healed. Let's see how Jesus responds. You see, if she would have touched his prayer cloth, that thing would have been unclean. Every person that she muscled through in the crowd, unclean. So she's in a moment of desperation. She does everything she can to fall at Jesus' feet. How will he respond? How will Jesus respond to us when, when, when we are in a season of great desperation? Look at me, verse, verse 43. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Busted, right? When all denied it, so here's this woman. She knew she was healed. I, I, I didn't touch him. I, so she has an encounter with Jesus, and she's not perfect. She sins. She lies. How does Jesus respond even after he healed her? When all denied, Peter said, uh, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And what is that word? Falling down before him. 
declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So she's busted. Everybody's ceremonially unclean. Jesus is apparently ceremonially unclean. She falls at Jesus' feet, confesses. How will Jesus respond? Verse 48. And he said to her, daughter. Now this woman would have almost certainly been older than Jesus. But Jesus had a much higher position. He had much greater authority than her. So he had power over her. But he calls her daughter. A term of endearment. Daughter, your faith has made you well. So he, at this moment, this marginalized, isolated woman, he elevates, so he draws her in by calling her daughter. He elevates both her spiritual condition, your faith has made you well. Putting to rest any of those rumors, he says your faith has made you well. Proclaiming to all, just like a priest would have done after a ceremonial washing, proclaiming to all, you are well. He draws her in, he lifts her up, and he says, go in peace. He sends her out. I'll tell you what, she hasn't had peace for 12 years. But an encounter with Jesus, she has peace. You see, Jesus is a rabbi, he's a teacher, but he's not like other people teachers. He's not like other rabbis. If she would have touched another rabbi, the prayer cloth would have been ceremonially unclean. Ceremonially unclean. But Jesus is the, what the scripture calls the great high priest. So when people come and touch him, come into an encounter with him, he makes them clean because he will one day be the sacrifice that the high priest would lay on the altar. You see, in that custom, they must go before the priest. The priest would check that person out to make sure their, their wound was, clean, uh, was healed. And then they would ceremonially wash them and then pronounce them clean. Jesus did all that in a moment. And not only cleansed her body, he cleansed her soul. Jesus is powerful over our physical world. He is powerful over the spiritual world. He is powerful over anything you and I will ever come against. No matter the, the sickness, no matter the brokenness, no matter the estrangement, no matter the addiction, whatever you, wherever you find yourself, you need but one touch from Jesus. Now, he may not physically heal you, but he will spiritually heal you. You see, in a moment, we're going to see how he raises a girl to life. But I tell you what I know about that girl. She died again, physically. But though we all die, we will all be made alive through Christ. Jesus' power and his tenderness are most experienced when you and I are desperate. So now the smoothie lens shifts 
to Jairus. And I'd imagine if I was Jairus, I'm like, Jesus, we're busy. Like, don't stop. Keep going. My, my daughter is dying. But Jairus sits back and he sees what's going on in this scene. And I imagine he vacillates between awe and anxiety. Like, this is amazing. We got, that, that's great for that woman. We got to get to my house. My daughter is dying. And then we see in verse 49 that Jairus's desperation turns to despair. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So, well, we, again, we don't know all the inner workings of what Jairus is going through, but we do know that Jairus' servant believed that the teacher was a miracle worker, was powerful, but come on, who can raise the dead? Verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this answer, okay, note, it's not Jairus hears it and he doesn't go, Oh, Jesus, can you do something about this? No, Jesus knows and hears about the situation. He hears about it and says, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. All were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. But they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. So here's Jairus. He, uh, he, he probably doesn't think Jesus is going to raise his daughter from the dead. At least his servant doesn't. But what does he do? He walks alongside with Jesus. He goes, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what Jesus is going to do. Maybe he's going to console us, pray for us, me and my wife. But I'm going to walk alongside Jesus. Many of you in this room who are in a great season of desperation, you, you got nothing. Like your faith is at E. You're like, God, I, I don't feel like you've shown up at all in any way during this season of my life. I feel abandoned, I feel alone, I feel isolated. Where are you? Probably that's what Jairus is thinking. And just, but he just walks along with Jesus. He just lets Jesus lead him wherever he, wherever Jesus wants him to go. And, and what does Jesus do after he takes his sweet time to get to Jairus' house? But taking her by the hand, he called, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. By, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. <laughs> so here's Jesus. He dramatically, beyond anyone's expectation, 
raises this girl to life. And in, in raising her to life, he simultaneously restores the relationships, the hopes, the dreams of this girl and her family. You see, in Jairus' greatest moment of desperation, he experienced Jesus' power. Child, arise. And he experiences tenderness. Child, arise. At the same time. That's... When we are in seasons of desperation, that's what God invites us in to. So we have these two people who are completely desperate, very different, but both found themselves the same place at the feet of Jesus. My question for you is, are you in a season of desperation? Are you sick? Are you anxious? Are you depressed, alone, isolated? Is your marriage broken? Is your marriage breaking? Are your children estranged? Are they wayward? Are they on the wrong path? You see, when we, almost without fail, in the ministry, with us pastors, when you have someone coming up to you in tears, one of two things are happening. They've just got the diagnosis or the relationship has just broken. Almost exclusively. Are you sick? Do you need healing? Do you need your relationship with your dad to heal? Or your mother or your sister or your child? Are you at a season of desperation? And maybe you feel spiritually sick. Maybe you listened to Pastor, Ch uh, Pastor Rick's message last week about Jesus casting out demons and you feel in your heart, you saying to yourself, I don't know if I really believe in that. Like demons and spooks and goblins, like isn't that just fairy tale stuff? Wherever you find yourself at, physical, spiritual, or relational desperation, wherever you find yourself at, your next step is to run to Jesus, to fall at his feet, to cry out and say, Help me. And will he be angry? Will he dismiss you? Will he be frustrated with you? Will he embarrass you? Will he be like an angry dad who fixes everything and says, you just you need to figure out how to do this next time? Or will he be like a sweet, caring uh, friend who can't do anything about it? Jesus is greater, more powerful, has control over everything you and I will experience. So when we run to him, fall on our faces before him, we will experience his power and we will experience his tenderness. Just try it. When we go to Jesus, he will do this. Look, no matter where you're at, neither one of these characters clean themselves up before they went to Jesus. The woman was unclean. Jairus was unbelieving. Wherever you find yourself, it doesn't matter last night if you again took that pill or took that substance that you promised you, God you wouldn't do. 
Or maybe again, you logged on and went to that website and you did something you promised you wouldn't do. Maybe you've just broken again a fissure in a relationship. Maybe you've just said that thing or done that. Wherever you find yourself in, what will he do? He will invite you in. He will call you son and he will call you daughter. He will lift you up, forgive your sins. He will pronounce you clean. And he will say, do not fear. And he will send you out, walking you by the hand, saying, child, arise and go in peace. You can trust him. And I know that from experience. Now, I want to shift now into ways we can apply this to our own lives. So we don't just hear about um, uh, God's power and tenderness, but we put ourselves in a situation to experience that. You know, I want to confess to you <laughs> uh, as a pastor an area of sin in my life that I feel like God has been convicting me of. So I'm in the process of, um, you know, we are going to be launching a campus in Strongsville in September, and uh, I'm really excited about that. And uh, I'm in the process of a training. So I, it's like a full day training every other week and like take home stuff you have to do. So a lot of prep and a lot of training for that. I'm, I'm hopefully finishing a PhD where I'm in the dissertation phase where you write this long paper and try to get it approved by all these old professors. It's kind of a whole thing. <clears throat> and I having so much input in my life training and uh, honing my craft that the God has just, I felt like slapped me around. He goes, do you think, do you think you're, you're like slick enough or smart enough or, or uh, educated enough to like do anything? Like, do you think, like we, we have a heart. We want to see 200 people come to faith in the Strongsville area. We want to see one campus launched out of the campus. We want to see one unreached people group identified and engaged. We want to see Jesus lifted up. And Jesus is saying, look, you're doing all this stuff, but you're not praying. You're not coming to me in prayer. I'm like, oh, I got too much stuff to do. That's foolish. And I feel like God uh, is working in me through, through Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. You'll see it on the screen. It says all this, so it's basically talking to the nation of Israel. He said, look, you want to build me a fancy temple? You want to do all these things for me? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be declared Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And I confess to you, that's a, that hasn't been my spirit. I have, been come, I have been trying to live, since I'm not in a season of desperation, I've been trying to live this out in, without humility, without a contrite spirit, without trembling at God's word. So I've been trying to do some things in my life because even though I'm not in a season of desperate, I want to be desperate. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness because scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's where I'm at. And I imagine some of you, maybe you're not in a season of great desperation, but you're in a desperate place. Because if you are not desperate before God, then you're all alone. 
And I don't want to be all alone. I need God in my life. So I want to pivot toward ways to become desperate or ways to experience God's power and tenderness in desperation. But before I do that, I know there are many people in this room who are in a season of desperation and you do not feel God's power and tenderness at all. You're like, I'm in the middle of this terrible season. I feel like God's abandoned me. You know, I, was, um, I made some blueberry pancakes for my family. I think it was last Saturday. And I was talking with Deborah, my wife, about this. And Deborah went through a season of desperation when she was in kind of her late middle school and into high school years based on some disruption in her, in her home. And I said, sweetheart, did you experience Jesus's power and tenderness in your season of desperation? She kind of, you know, put another bite of blueberry pancake in her mouth and she's like, not really. I'm like, I gotta redo my notes then, <laughs> right? I go, really, okay. Well, say, and, but she, she says, well, I learned a lot of things and I'm looking back, I see how God used it. But in the moment, I didn't really experience it. I said, well, babe, what would you tell people who are in a season of desperation and don't experience God's presence? What would you say? She kind of looked up and she said, read your Bible anyway. Man, I think that's true. If you're in a season of desperation, you feel like your eyes, keep walking with Jesus. Keep stepping with him. Either you don't pray, you don't feel like reading, read one chapter. You don't feel like praying, pray one, pray, pray the Lord's Prayer. Whatever it is, because whether now or in the future, Jesus hopes to burst out his streams of living water into your life. Okay, all right. Well, how do we become or stay desperate? I've got four steps. And I'd like you to pick one of these four things to take into your life and apply to your life. First is if you were in a season of desperation and God brought you out of that, as he has in my life, maybe there's a physical reminder that you could have in your pocket, on your wall, whatever, to remind yourself of God's faithfulness. I have one. So this is a map of Portland, Oregon that I picked up my first day in Portland. And it's a map of, map of the city. And I remember walking the city like, like I was like a homeless person with nowhere to, nowhere to stay because I was so lonely. I just longed for someone to talk to me. And this, this, um, this memento reminds me of my desperation and God's faithfulness. I don't have time to go into it now, but God moved in an amazing way, redirected my course for my good in so many ways. So what I have, I have this hung up next to the place that I pray the most. So it's in my office, kind of a little nook. So anytime I get a little too big for my britches, right, as my mom would say, I look at this map and remember my weakness and God's power and faithfulness. So maybe you've got a memento that you can hang up or, or remind yourself of God's faithfulness. The second pattern that I've applied that's helped me become desperate or stay desperate is fasting. Now, fasting is going without some pleasure for a period of time for the purposes of connecting with God. Now, when I was young in college, my dad encouraged me about fasting. So the pattern uh, for about the last 15 years of my life is that uh, I try to fast one day a week, so from after dinner one night until dinner the next 
night. And any of that time I would spend eating or preparing food, I spend it in prayer. Now, do I do it every week? Sometimes I miss, but that's a regular pattern in my life. I know what you're thinking. That's why he's so skinny. <laughs> it's one of the reasons. Um, but that's something that anytime I feel hunger pains, it reminds me of my dependence on God. Anytime I'm cranky, because I haven't eaten, it reminds me of my dependence on God. So I encourage you, have you ever fasted? Jesus did regularly. It was a regular part of his spiritual life. So if you have never fasted, give it a shot. Hey, just go breakfast and lunch and then eat dinner. Just try that. And the time you'd spend in breakfast and lunch, you spend that time in prayer and Bible study. The third thing is reading our Bibles. Now, none of this is new. These are just reminders. When we read our Bibles, we will realize how much we need Christ. Whether it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, we see the beginning of the Bible, end of the Bible. It's just a constant reminder of our need for Christ. And here's something that I've been trying to apply to my life. So we've got a five-year-old, three-year-old, and an eight-month-old. Eight-month-old gets up pretty much without fail at 6 a.m., and I kind of try to hold the baby for a little while to let them get a little more sleep. So what happens is it becomes difficult to have that, like, quiet time. And so what happens is I have to hit the ground running, those margins in life that can be filled up with so many things. I'm trying to recapture those. So I've kind of a mantra that I'm applying to my life. It's this. I'm going to touch my Bible before I touch my phone. I'm going to touch my Bible before I touch my phone. Because I know what happens, right? You got your, you got your phone next to your bedside, be, uh, bedside table. The, the alarm goes off. You turn the alarm off and you roll over and you go for about 15 minutes. Checking the news, sports, Facebook, Instagram. Oh, oh 15 minutes later. Oh, okay, I guess I don't have time to read my Bible. I was there. So I, look, even if you just want to put your Bible next to your phone, you just go, okay, Josh told me, you know. I mean, I don't recommend that, but it's, it's, a, it's a loophole. Touch your Bible before you touch your phone. If you, the more you eat of God's word, the hungrier you, hungrier you will become. And then finally, as I, as I shared earlier, prayer. I have been weak in my prayer life, and I feel like God has given me, it's not something I've come up with, God has given me a greater hunger for prayer. And we have a prayer summit coming up in March. But I know in our lives, it's so hard to be quiet before the Lord and pray. You know, I heard from a man that I greatly respect. He said, all our failures are prayer failures. I think in a large sense that's correct. So in a moment, I'm going to give us time now to pray. You'll see on the screen, there are three categories of people. And underneath those categories, there are um, a short prayers that I would encourage you to pray. So say you're desperate right now. You are in a season of desperation. We're going to give you some time to pray. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. And maybe you're not in a season of desperation like me. And your things are going okay. Your prayer is, Jesus, I fall at your feet. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And maybe you're here, you're spiritually dead. Maybe you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you've had Jesus on the periphery. Maybe he's a really cool teacher, but he is not the Savior or your Savior. I hope you realize 
that Jesus offers you acceptance. But the only reason that you can be accepted by Christ is because Christ took your rejection on the cross. He took you, your humiliation, half naked, bleeding on the cross. He took your embarrassment. He took your punishment. He took your broken relationships, the broken relationships you have with the Father, and he mended it. He restored it. So if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, today is the day to experience his power and his tenderness in your life. And if that's you, you pray, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross, you rose again, and that through faith you can have, you can, you can take my sins away. So I'm gonna pray, pray, pray a quick prayer, and then I'm gonna give you some time to pray. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, Lord, thank you so much that you're powerful and you're tender. <laughs> uh, in the midst of our fail, foolishness, failure, fatigue, Lord, you show up great. Lord, thank you done that in my life. Lord, forgive me for prayerlessness, for thinking I'm, I'm all it takes. Forgive me for work, trying to work hard, but not trying to be humble. So Lord, I, I pray for those who are in this room. Wherever they're at, they're desperate. They need to be desperate. They're, on, they're spiritually dead. Lord, would you work right now in their midst through prayer?